Support for this podcast is provided by Paradox, the conversational AI company helping global talent acquisition teams at Unilever, McDonald's and CVS Health get recruiting work done faster. Let's face it, talent acquisition is full of boring administrative tasks that drag the hiring process down and create frustrating experiences for everyone. Paradox's AI assistant, Olivia, is shaking up that paradigm, automating things like applicant screening, interview scheduling, and candidate Q&A, so recruiters can spend more time with people, not software. Curious how Olivia can work for your team? Then visit paradox.ai to learn more. There's been more of scientific discovery more of technical advancement and material progress in your lifetime and mine than in all the ages of history. Hi there, this is Matt Alder. Welcome to episode 422 of the Recruiting Future podcast. So today is the international publication date for Digital Talent, the book I spent the last couple of years writing with Mervyn Dinan. We're incredibly excited that everyone can finally get to read it. I wanted to record a special show to discuss the themes and some of the significant learnings from our research. In a disrupted and technology-enabled world of work, the ability to attract, recruit and retain people with digital skills can be the difference between business success and business failure. Our book explores how employers can do this successfully. I'm absolutely delighted that Trish McFarlane, host of the legendary HR Happy Hour podcast, has agreed to be our guest host and interview Mervyn and me for this episode. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Trish. Hi, Mervyn. Welcome to the podcast. Could we just kick off with you both introducing yourselves? Trish, would you like to go first? I would love to. Thank you. So I'm Trish McFarlane. I am the principal analyst at H3HR Advisors former HR practitioner for my entire career. I've done just about everything related to human resources because I'm so passionate about that as a topic overall. Um, have been a blogger for a long time, an analyst now for a long time, and also a podcaster for a long time. So since about 2013, have been the co-host of the HR Happy Hour. And we actually recently changed the focus of the podcast and are now calling it At Work in America. And it's going to be a much more story-focused podcast. So other than that, I have twin boy-girl that are turning 18 here soon and about to be an empty nester. So lots of uh, of things going on in my world. Wow. No, and I'm a massive fan of the podcast as well. So really interested to see see where it's going next. Mervyn, would you you like to introduce yourself to everyone? Definitely. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be on the chat with yourself and Trish. I'm Mervyn. I'm a, a writer, analyst, commentator, influencer, apparently, around HR talent, work tech trends. I co-author books with Matt, and I co-author white paper reports with Matt, and I also write my own reports and blogs and, and talk at events and, and generally kind of do things like that. Um, my kids are all grown up and left home, and um, this is what I do now. 
And I think this is your, you're breaking the record for most appearances uh, on this podcast. It's either six or seven now. I can't, I can't remember. I'll count at some stage, but obviously welcome back as, as always. So as I said in the introduction, this is a special show. We're going to be talking about mine and Mervyn's new book, Digital Talent. And it just made sense to get someone else to actually ask us questions about it other than, rather than us sort of talking about it between ourselves. So Trish has very kindly agreed to be the guest host for this podcast. So on that note, I am going to pass full control of the show over to Trish. Thank you so much. And thank you for asking me to guest host. I'm very passionate about the topic that you all have written about. And I'm a fan of your previous books. So I think this will be a very interesting discussion. With that said, I mentioned uh, your previous book back in 2017. You all wrote Exceptional Talent, How to Attract, Acquire, and Retain the Very Best Employees. So beyond the obvious short answer of what's changed being the pandemic, what really changed and inspired you to write this book on digital talent specifically? Exceptional Talent was a very sort of generic look across all kinds of industries and all kinds of disciplines about what was going on in the in the talent space and we wanted to we wanted to write a follow up the difficult second album as, as as we called it as we were as we were writing the book um and really wanted to focus on what was at the time you know one of the biggest issues for the the employers that we were talking about which is the digital transformation and having the right talent and skills in the business to be able to do that now we started the book before the pandemic then the pandemic hit and it soon became very clear that this topic was even more important so before most employers were in, involved in some kind of digital transformation when the pandemic hit every company was doing it. So we were looking at whole industries that hadn't have to even think about digital transformation before restaurants, theatres, all these kind of businesses, suddenly having to have digital skills within their business to really kind of move forward in the, the, the sort of the new world that the pandemic was creating. So it became even more important. And the pandemic really kind of accelerated a lot of the things that we were talking about in the book. So we had to have a bit of a pause and, and go back and rethink some of it. But the, the themes were very, very relevant. And it was really just the pace of change that, that had speeded up. So it's a book about digital transformation and having the right skills in your business to be able to do that. Well, I think Matt's pretty much outlined it well there. I think for me, the first book, Exceptional Talent, was, I suppose, looking at the fact that the employee journey, so from, from candidate, even before you're a candidate, from, from kind of, you know, applying through interviewing, onboarding, and, and then kind of development and staying with the business, this journey was now underpinned by tech. And, you know, it was seamless journey, intuitive, and, and a lot of companies were possibly still taking more of an analog approach to hiring and to onboarding and, and, and talent management and stuff. And so we were trying to showcase what a lot of companies were now beginning to do in terms of making it more digital. For me, I think the second book is more about the fact that digital transformation is really an organizational change, but we don't treat it as such. We don't support our people as such. We just say, guess what? You've got an iPad now, or guess what? This is the way you book your leave. This is the way you reclaim your expenses. You can now collaborate through this tool and we'll just watch from afar. And uh, we don't really prepare our people for that. So we give them 
digital tools, but we don't check if they've got the digital skills, the digital nous. Um, and I think I, for me, with this book, we're coming at it from a slightly different angle, which is kind of, you know, what is the purpose of digital transformation? And how are we just adapting what we do internally to help our people and our future employees be able to become digital talent? I love the way that that you both frame that. And the topic really has sort of evolved over these past few years since you wrote the first book. Mervyn, you touched on some of the changes with um, digital. It sounds to me like it went from much more of a tactical approach or even maybe an approach people weren't taking back in 2017. And now, because of sort of being thrust into different work scenarios and different work maybe locations because of a pandemic, you mentioned digital skills specifically. Could you talk a little bit about how having good digital skills is really important for employees and how we need to focus on those? The important thing from my point of view is, is, have, is, is that our employees are comfortable with how we want them to operate. So at the beginning of the book, we, 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 I, I start with a very a straightforward example of reclaiming expenses. So when in line of your work, you, you incur expenses, which you then reclaim from the business. And we actually had a, a small focus group with four or five people from the same organization talking about how that had changed. They used to go in, fill out a petty cash slip. And I know going back a long time, but actually not too long ago, uh, people were still doing this even when they had all the tech at work and everything and just reclaiming it. And, and then it's reimbursed either in cash or it goes into your next pay slip. And, and, and the focus group we had was people across different ages. There were millennials. They were a, a, an employee been there for over 30 years. And they all said how difficult they found it now to reclaim expenses. In fact, to the point is where, unless it was a significant amount, they didn't bother. And the millennial employee actually was the one who said, I think they've made it difficult on purpose. So they don't want us to to reclaim unless it's a big amount. And I thought this was almost a light bulb moment. It's, it's such a, I suppose, a small part of day-to-day -day work. And yet here is you know, somebody in their late 20s thinking that the company had overcomplicated something so that effectively that the, 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 it didn't cost them anything and the employee bought the cost. And there, I did some reading at the time and there was, I can't remember the, the lady who wrote it, but there was a lot of stuff about shadow work, all the work that, that the organization used to do, which has now been pushed on to the employee. And, and it, I suppose, took it down a route of, well, well, how does this play out? And if we are going to do that, how do we ensure that the, 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 the employees we've got are ready to, to, to adapt? Have they got a digital mindset? Do they think that way? Do they still think in an analog way? Do they still approach work in that way? So the whole relationship changes. And I suppose it, it, the digital skills are, are, are different things. One is a mindset. And the other one is just being comfortable with with doing things digitally and now remotely. And it, sometimes it takes time, but we don't necessarily support our people. And there was some research from PwC that I use in the first chapter of the book. And things like booking leave and stuff, people are quite happy to do online. But anything that was a bit personal, they actually wanted to interface with HR still. They didn't just want to do it online. And again, organizations have to think, you know, are we making this a poor work experience for our people or are we actually 
making it better? Are we giving them a better work experience? And so we look at, you know, in the opening, I suppose, a, a number of scenarios of where kind of what digitization means and how it impacts what our employees do on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. You know, I agree. It's interesting when you give that example of sort of maybe technology or the employer making things difficult on purpose, especially as as it relates to maybe expenses, I've been in that position myself. I wonder if the difference is maybe those of us who have been in the work world a little bit longer than the millennials, for example, are the leaders less ready to stand up and maybe make that sort of remark that something is being made more difficult? Do you see that maybe the, the transformation needs to actually not only just come right from maybe younger generations, having a better understanding of what digital skills they need, but maybe it's also on those of us who are in the leadership roles. Did you find that at all when you were doing the research, Marvin? We did. I think that uh, HR, most of the research we see shows HR professionals as being not overly comfortable themselves in in a digital environment, but that that is beginning to change. And I think that it's, I suppose, HR are the people, particularly HR leaders, who have to say, look, this is great. We're buying this whole new system, this whole new platform for our employees, but it's got to be something that our employees want to use. It's got to be something that actually helps them to do their job better, helps us to get more of the data and information we want, and actually uh, yeah, helps them maybe to do things faster, to focus on maybe more high-value work. So I think that it is you know, beholden to HR leaders in particular to actually be comfortable with these things and to, I suppose, lead the way in in making sure that that the digital environments we have are ones which in which our employees can really thrive. Yeah, I agree. You know, Matt, I want to throw this one to you. One of the things Mervyn talked about was that employees really still want to feel cared for is the way I'm interpreting what he said, that they don't, you know, they want digital skills and digital technology for certain transactions, maybe certain areas of the work they're doing, and maybe not in some of the other more personal areas. Could you talk a little bit about, um, from a talent acquisition perspective, as candidates are relating to the organization and to maybe the recruiters and the hiring managers, where is that line of, I guess, digital readiness from a candidate perspective, and what can organizations be doing to show that these candidates and potentially future employees are being cared for, but also supported digitally? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I think the talent acquisition aspects of this are are, are fascinating. It's such challenging time for employers when it comes to talent acquisition at the moment, particularly when it comes to recruiting people with with digital skills, because every employer is effectively fishing in the same talent pool. And I think what we're seeing and what we've seen accelerate during the pandemic is companies having to move quicker, but also maintain the quality of the recruitment experience and the humanity of the recruitment experience, and also really get across the quality of the employment experience that people will be having when they when they join the company. So 
there's a, there's a really interesting balance going on. We're seeing some you know incredible leaps forward in technology with things like AI and automation, everything from you know automated sourcing to automated communication within the within the within the recruitment process. And I think and what we really sort of talk about in the in the book is the the importance of the balance between those things. Though so that technology is allowing recruiters to be better at being recruiters to be better at having that that human connection um, and there's some some great case studies in the book for organizations who are really building those relationships with the talent they need in advance so there's one particular organization in the book that are actually building talent pipelines that are five ten years long in terms of spotting people with very specialist skills who might want to who might want to join their organization we're also seeing companies using chatbots and automation to actually improve the quality of the candidate experience and give people more information and make the whole thing feel feel much better. So it, it's really interesting and it's just incredibly important. And I think the companies that are really winning in talent acquisition at the moment are the ones who have that speed within their process are implementing technology that's helping them to to do things to find skills to do things like find adjacent skills to think differently about the talent that they need for their business and not necessarily be constrained by some old ways of thinking about what talent looks like so you know using technology to do that but really amping up the human relationship part of it and giving people that great experience and that really comes together for me in terms of where this is going which i think is personalization in the book we talk about personalization of the employment experience personalization of the candidate experience personalization of recruitment marketing all of these kind of things and i think that is really the key to all of this to use technology to enable the humans within all of these processes to give a very personalized experience. And that's what really will help employers stand out. I'm so glad you said that personalization piece, because when I'm thinking about whether it's for me personally or thinking about someone I might be hiring, that feeling of caring does come easier through personalization, right? And sometimes technology can seem quite cold or it has in the past. Maybe there wasn't that focus on it. Could you talk a little bit, Matt, about you know, we are in a time of the great resignation or a million other phrases for that, right? Recruiters themselves are also understaffed and feeling quite a bit of pressure. And so on one hand, they're turning to these digital technologies and using those type of skills to help them more than ever before. But how are they then balancing out the actual journey that you all mentioned that employees and candidates go through? Is, is there still a disconnect you're seeing or are we actually truly kind of turning the page on recruiters feeling like they are empowered through digital technologies? It's an interesting question. I think one of the things that we covered in Exceptional Talent was this idea of this seamless, this kind of seamless journey. So someone joins a company, they go through a recruitment process, they go for an L&D process, they go through talent management, you know, whatever that might be, and eventually leave that company. And it basically feels like one joined up experience. What was interesting to me during the the, the first part of the pandemic were lots of organizations were talking about internal mobility 
So it's like we need to see what skills we've got within our business and how we move those um, people people around effectively. And lots of talent acquisition teams who at the time weren't necessarily doing much external hiring were starting to focus on that on that internal mobility part. With all of these things, what really struck me was there was a great sense of aspiration in terms of, well, this is what we need to do. We need to understand skills. We need to move people around. We need to give people this exceptional experience through all the stages of everything that they, you know, every, every touch point we have with them as an employer. But very few companies able to able to do it. And I think what came over in those internal mobility conversations I were having. Some of them are reflected in the book. More of them have been on the podcast. You know, people didn't have the technology or the processes or the strategy to be able to, you know, to be able to do that effectively. So I think that this kind of joined up process, this joined up experience, a lot of it is still aspirational for many employers. I think that sometimes in our in our industry, we really celebrate success and we celebrate innovation and we put brilliant case studies in books and on podcasts of people doing amazing things. But I think we have to remember for every one of those companies that's doing that, there's a thousand or 10,000 or a hundred thousand companies who haven't quite got there yet. So in the book, we talk a lot about strategy and a lot about, you know, really thinking about how this is how this is going to work and plotting a journey to go towards that that seamless beautiful technology enabled personalized human experience so i think it's it's aspirational for almost every employer but what has been really clear through the pandemic is that is the direction of travel that is where that is where companies want to go and that's where ta teams want to go as well thank you i think that's why a book like this is so critical to have right now as a guide because I think sometimes when you're looking online or maybe you're talking to, you know, other HR professionals, other business leaders, it might feel like you and your organization are so far behind. So it's actually refreshing to hear that it is still quite aspirational for many employers and that we're all on this process at varying stages of that. And you can take value from some of the research and some of the case studies you all are offering within the book. Mervyn, I want to turn to you and talk a little bit about, you know, obviously we're in a time where we're seeing a lot of remote work. We're two years into the pandemic at this point of the recording and of your of your book launching. Can you talk a little bit about hybrid and remote learning and remote working and just how we're having to sort of rethink the talent intelligence that we have in our approaches to this? Thanks, Trish. Yes, the the last two years have seen a big change. Um, I think that when I'm asked about hybrid working, remote working, working from home, I suppose there are, there are two or three points I always make first. And the first one is that, that, that well, certainly in the UK, over half of the jobs done in the economy can't be done from home. Yeah, construction, utilities, healthcare, you know, a, a lot of those can't be done from home. So we are talking about the, the minority, but a fairly significant minority, about 45%. Um, obviously, a lot of the commentariat or the digital commentariat around the world of work are all people who can work from home and work remotely. So that tends to be the, um, the narrative is weighted that way. I think the other thing, again, this is UK data. Leesman did something last year and found that, that uh, something like 43, 44% of people working from home don't have a dedicated space. 
So, I mean, I I have, you know, kids grown up, left home. I have a room. I shut the door. I've got a desk in it. You know, I've got no, nobody's about to interrupt me during this chat. But obviously, there are quite a few people doing high-pressure jobs from home who don't have a dedicated space. They, they may be sharing that space with a, a spouse or kids or there's things going on around them. And, of course, for the younger workers, uh, the under-25s, again, in the UK, you know, 72% of them have no dedicated space. So particularly those who are younger, who maybe are flat sharing with a friend or two, they're basically working in their bedrooms and, and, you know, at night sleeping in their offices effectively. So whilst we talk about it, 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 we, we have to remember that it's not the right solution for everybody. I give an example of two people I know very well. One uh, is a guy in his early 30s. The other is his father, who's in his late 50s. The guy in his early 30s is single. He couldn't. He can't wait to go back to the office or couldn't wait to get back to the office you know, to just be with people. And you know, that human connection was so important for him. Uh, he doesn't mind his commute into town. He you know, listens to podcasts and stuff. Whereas the older guy, his father, um, actually doesn't want to go back to the office ever again. He, he doesn't want to do the commute. He can do everything he needs to from home. He's got the, the uh, home comforts at home. And so it's not that simple. And sometimes the remote, flexible, hybrid working conversation is presented as something that's very straightforward. It's what everybody wants. And yes, it's what a lot of people want, but but what they want is balance as well. So we we did some research about two, three years ago, which is it talked about in the book, amongst 14,000 job seekers in Europe. And we found that um, there was a keen interest. This is before the pandemic. There was a keen interest in working from home. People felt that they had the tools in their current job to be able to work from home. But the problem that flagged up was that several, and it was over a third, reported feelings of isolation when they were working from home. So I think we, we, we need to balance all of that, and we need to do what is best for our people. Having said that, it isn't just location, it's time. So it, it's got to be asynchronous working as well. Matt and I are a great example. We live like 500 miles apart. Well, on, on the same time zone, I have to say, 500 miles apart, we, we don't do any of our writing together in the same room. We write at different times. We, it, when we work on projects and reports and research for clients, we're, we're inputting at different times. And it works perfectly well for us. We've both got dedicated spaces. But yeah, it, it, it has to work for everybody. And I think that a lot of it comes down to leadership and obviously to culture. And if you've got a culture that supports that, you trust your people, and it's not the the old-fashioned, you know, I don't want you working at home, I want you sitting in front of me where I can see what you're doing, kind of attitude, which some businesses still have, then you're never going to successfully adopt it. I know there is a narrative around the great resignation that people are leaving jobs because they want to find jobs that they can do remotely. And there is an element of that. And there's certainly data, again, it's mainly UK, Europe, that older people, probably 50 plus, some are leaving jobs because they found a way to maybe work from home and they would prefer to do that and maybe not work full time because over the two years of the pandemic, they found a different rhythm. Um, so I think you know it, it, it's complex and it's not a one size fits all. But I think for all organizations, it has to be an option. Now, you did mention remote learning there as well. So I'll cover that one off slightly more briefly. What 
Uh, the research we've done over the last two, three, four years uh, has consistently shown that employees want, want access to knowledge as and when they need it. So they don't really want to learn at specific times set by the organization. They want to know it's there and they want to be able to access it as and when they find that they need to know things. What we found in a piece of research we did at the beginning of the pandemic, we cover in the book, is that there are problems with remote learning. Some of it's to do with the tech, some of it's to do with interaction, certainly anything to do with performance management and those kind of conversations. Zoom isn't the best platform for conversations like that. What we found was that almost every company in the research said that, you know, the employee experience is, is the most important thing when they choose to invest in tech. But that actually only about 20% actually consulted their employees before investing in tech. So it's got to be a great experience, and we, we ask our employees what they want, but ultimately it comes down to cost, it comes down to budgeting, it comes down to IT, it comes down to what fits in with our other systems, and that's when possibly the employees aren't getting the greatest learning experience remotely. Yeah, thank you. I I agree, I, and I'm glad that you bring up the technology aspect of that, Mervyn, because there are a lot of times where if you're in a leadership role, you are trying to listen to your employees. It's not that you're not listening, but sometimes we're making tech selection choices that aren't really solving maybe the root problem. We're sort of just kind of addressing symptoms. Matt, I want to throw this one to you, actually, because I know that you've written quite a bit about work technologies. And what are you seeing that are the work technology trends that are going to start addressing some of these more systemic challenges that Mervyn's talking about? Yeah, I think it it reflects what I was saying earlier about strategy. I mean, I think that one of the biggest issues that we have in work technology, and we've had it for years and years and years, is this this sense of shiny object syndrome. You know, someone someone invents something and we've got to have it because it's going to be a silver bullet that solves all of our problems. It's interesting because a few years ago, one of the biggest issues with recruitment tech, with HR tech, was the lack of integration or how difficult it was to integrate different bits of software. And over time, that's getting that's getting easier and easier. So actually what it's doing is it's giving people more choice in terms of what they can what they can plug into their tech stack. I think the other issue is that there is so much money and investment going into the work tech space at the moment. I mean it's kind of breathtaking. Every every year we think we've kind of hit some new peak and then that's dwarfed about three months later. Um, and it you know it, it seems that that's gonna continue, which means that there are more solutions than there have ever been before. And I think one of the problems with the people creating these solutions is they're very often creating solutions to very niche problems. So things that are genuinely a problem, but when you look at it strategically on the you know the list of a, a TA leader or an HR leader, they're probably problem number 55 rather than problem number one. But shiny object syndrome can mean that people sort of dive in and say, I'm going to sort of fix that problem. So I think what really needs to happen is, and what I'm seeing more and more of, is people 
sitting back and diagnosing their issues, working out where they want to get to and using technology as an enabler to to get them there. And it sounds really obvious, but it, it doesn't happen very often. It doesn't happen as much as it, you know, as as much as it, it should be. And I think in in order to do that, you do have to have a very good a very good knowledge of what the trends are in work tech and what's possible. And that's really what we kind of go into in the book. We're talking about AI, we're talking about data analytics, we're talking about automation, um, how those things fit together, how they fit into HR and TA strategies. And also, you know, looking looking over the horizon slightly, we've got the metaverse, we've got uh, you know, the return of blockchain, uh, you know, all these all these other things going on. So I think that technology space is very very confusing because there's you know there's so much there's so much stuff out there and so much stuff being created and really what we're urging people to do is just take a step back and think about you know understand what's possible understand what the trends are but really take look back at your organization and say what what are we trying to achieve here and how can technology help us so you know it sounds really simple but it's not necessarily a simple thing a simple thing to do but that sort of strategic thinking i think is just critical in work tech moving forward i would agree with you i think there's so much to unpack there that you just said you could do an entire podcast series just on that last little bit uh, and maybe you will i think what my takeaway there is that when you talked about diagnosing the real issues they sometimes don't match up with how the vendors are actually designing their solutions. And having been on the vendor side as well, sometimes you're, you don't have maybe the development team in place or, you know, enough resources yourself to develop what you really strategically want to from a product perspective, even though you know that's what clients and, and businesses ultimately need. And so I think that's where a little bit of that finding creativity around certain niche solutions comes into into being. But if I'm the buyer and I'm the one who's looking sort of to diagnose my organization's bigger issues and what's at hand, I think the important step then is to sort of take what you all are finding in your research and your recommendations and marry that up with the way that they're selecting a vendor partner to make sure that you're both on the same page. So again, we don't hear a lot about that particular piece of it. So I'm really glad that you all are covering that in the book because it's going to at least start getting the wheels turning for the reader in terms of who am I partnering with? Are they really trying to develop solutions for the issues that my organization not only has today, but long-term? So, well, listen, I mean, obviously there's there's a lot here. We don't want to give everything in the book away. <laughs> You've, you've both shared a, a good amount though so far. As we, as we kind of wrap this up, I'd love to hear from both of you, maybe Mervyn first, on what are some things that you're seeing cut ed- cutting edge employers doing to attract digital talent? And what can organizations do if they're not doing those things? That's a great question, Trish. I, I suppose I'll, I will start answering it, I suppose, putting a little bit on the end of what Matt and you have just said, in that, you know, we are investing huge, eye-wateringly high amounts in work, be it recruitment technology, be it learning technology, be it, and yet, you know, the data consistently comes back that employee experience is poor, 
great resignation. Candidate experience is very poor. And yet we're spending billions and billions. We're creating you know, the tech companies becoming unicorns. And, and the employee at the end of the day is having a bad experience. So for me, the most important thing is everything has to come down to the employee experience. How are we making things better for our people? How are we supporting them? How are we enabling them? How are we making their lives easier so they can do a better job and make our lives easier because our returns are better, our figures are better, our, all the stuff we measure, say, in HR by the kind of engagement and stuff like that and longevity. How do we improve that? So I think the most important things are to understand how we can use this to give a better experience to our people. And certainly in the book, we go into great depth about how to create a great kind of experience, employee experience, what do employees look for, what the role of leadership in creating culture of recognition and, and creating a, a, an environment in which people want to work and join. I think that the most important thing is to understand what you need your people to do. So what is your business? What are they doing? Understand how their role's changing. Understand how the technology you invest in can support them. And the best companies are, are putting the employee front and center of what they do. And it's not just traditional employees. It's the all the people who help to produce the output. So whether that's people who are freelance, people who come in, contracted workers, gig workers, it's how how you support and enable all those people to achieve their best work to give you the results you need. And it's very easy to keep taking your eye off the ball and assuming things are okay. So I think what we have seen the best employers do is is to put the employee front and center. Yeah, absolutely. I completely obviously completely agree with everything Mervyn's just said because that's what we've that's what we've written in the book. I want to add a couple of broader thoughts to that. I think to frame that, I think what we also have to realize is digital talent bringing digital talent into a business, it's a finite talent pool. There isn't enough digital talent in the world to fill to fill the roles that, that that people have and and people will have in the future and because of that i think that the companies who are doing this really well are the companies who are genuinely thinking differently about talent and a couple of examples of of how that's manifesting itself first of all there's a very very big systemic issue when it comes to you know having talent talent issues globally in terms of education systems and governments and education systems actually supporting people learning the right skills and uh, you know making people fit for sort of career fit in the in the in the world that we that we live in and it's a that's obviously very difficult to to keep up with but b you know most governments and, and education systems aren't doing a particularly good job of it and one of the organizations that, that we talk about in the book, a big Indian organization, actually have taken that into their own hands. They're actually working with education systems around the world to really help provide that work context and help talk about the skills that, that businesses need and get young people engaged and engaged with the kind of skills that it would be great for them to learn, but give them that vital context in terms of why am I learning this? How is this useful in terms of making the world a better place and having a and having a great career? So I think there's some interesting things in terms of tackling that sort of long long term systemic issue. I think the other thing is we talk about sort of total talent thinking in the book as well, which is 
this kind of future state that companies could move to where they effectively have just-in-time internal and external talent markets. So they understand the skills within their business. They're investing in their employees to keep their skills up to date and help them nurture the new digital skills that they mean. But also, they're looking outside the organization to to find people that they can bring in. But they're also looking outside the organization to find people they could bring in on a specific project basis. And just basically using that, thinking very holistically about that rather than doing it, you know, rather than sort of managing it in silos like a lot of companies do now. So this kind of sense of total talent thinking and giving all of those people a brilliant experience, as Mervyn was saying, is, 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 is really the key to all of this. Yeah, that's a great point. Actually, two great points, especially around the education system and how that's going to ultimately help address that systemic issue. And then in terms of just being open, I know you go much further in the book into it, but, you know, having good relationships with your alumni, because they might be the ones that you're calling back to work on those special projects in a a year or two, right? So it, it really is looking at that total talent picture that community that you create. And I think, again, we were probably starting to do this back in the late 90s, early 2000s, and we just didn't have technology to help enable that type of interaction. And if I could be so bold as to go back to your first book, the relationship, right, that you need to create when you're thinking about your entire talent pool that you're sort of in communication with. So, I tell you what, it's been fascinating to think about these things. It's been fascinating to see how your research and your insight has developed over the last few years and just really looking forward to what you all come up with in the next couple of years, right, of how this is all playing out and how organizations are starting to really implement some of these suggestions. Thank you very much. I've just remembered that this is my podcast. So thank you. Thank you very much, Trish. That was um, some amazing questions there. And thank you, Mervyn, as ever, for your incredible insights into all of this. So thanks very much for being on the show. Our thanks to Trish. Digital Talent is available now wherever you get your books. You can subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or via your podcasting app of choice. Please also follow the show on Instagram. You can find us by searching for Recruiting Future. You can search all the past episodes at recruitingfuture.com. On that site, you can also subscribe to the mailing list to get the inside track about everything that's coming up on the show. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back next time and I hope you'll join me. This is my show.